Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would, please now take out the Word of God, and you may have a printed copy or an electronic copy, and turn in it to Romans chapter 8. You don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you could take that Bible and turn in the back part to page 124, and you would find yourself at Romans 8. For several weeks, I've been doing a a series entitled, Four Favorites. And as part of that, at the beginning, I've been sharing with you some of my favorite things to eat and consume, and today I want to share with you my favorite ice cream cone flavor from the era of life when I was like eight, nine, ten years old. And uh, my favorite ice cream cone was something that we enjoyed when we went to T&W Dairy Store in New Jersey. T&W stands for Terwilliger and Wakefield was on Ridgewood Avenue in Ridgewood, New Jersey. And one thing about T&W, they were known for serving up very large premium ice cream cones. And uh, what I really liked about that so much is you'd get your ice cream cone and then you would go out and right near them, next to them, was what they called the wild duck pond. And so you could go out there on a nice day You'd have your cone in your hand. You could see the water, slight breeze. It was amazing. And uh, I provided an opportunity for many of you to try to guess what my favorite flavor of ice cream cone was when I was like eight or nine years old. And a number of you on Facebook or on the city made guesses. Um, Brent Green told me he just put one up and he said, chocolate, what was it, Brent? Fudge ripple, there you go, fudge ripple. That's one of the things I noticed in the, in the guessing is there was a lot of chocolate theme in all of that, and I do like chocolate, but that was not my favorite ice cream flavor when I was eight and nine years old. The answer to the mysterious question is orange sherbet was actually my favorite ice cream cone. And I'll tell you, they did. That little picture you see is an example, at least in an eight-year-old's mind, of what that thing looked like. It was this very large serving of orange sherbet ice cream, and I can still remember just licking that, and it was just, oh, so delicious. Now, I've pretty much given up ice cream cones at this point in my life, but if we were to go to Brahms together, you might very well find me ordering an orange sherbet freeze, because it all goes back to those days at T&W Dairy Store when we would get those ice cream cones. Now, if you've been with us in this series, you know this is not a series about my favorite treats. It's really a series about some of my favorite Bible passages, and the theme we've been using all along is a theme that comes from Jeremiah in the Old Testament, chapter 15 and verse 16, where Jeremiah says regarding God's word, he says, your words were found and I ate them. Your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. And there are many passages in God's word that delight me, but today I want to look at one of those, and that would be Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. Now, as we've done almost every time, I want to take you back in time a little bit. 
Remember, I, we first talked about John 3.16, and I talked about the idea of taking your name and putting it into that verse, which is what I did. For God so loved Bruce that he gave his unique son, that if Bruce were to believe in him, he would not perish but have eternal life. And that's what I did at that young age. But you know, when you, when you start a relationship with God, one of the questions that begins to come along is, how secure is my relationship with God? I mean, what if I, what if I really mess up? What if, I, what if I really messed up badly? How secure is my relationship with Jesus? I gotta share this with you in those days, you know, and, and, and I, I trusted Christ and I continued to go to our church and I can remember there was one particular day when I was in a Sunday school class with a group of boys and I so clearly remember the Sunday school teacher talking to us boys. And this is what he said to us one day. He said, boys, you need to know that if you mess up or you do wrong, God may take your mother from you. Like, wow. And I have to tell you, that haunted me for years. You know, I even began to think about myself. I said, what, if I step out of line, is he going to reject me? Not just take my mother away, but reject me? This raises all kinds of questions. How secure is my salvation? How certain is it as I just live my life out that he's going to continue to love me? And in those times when adversity avalanches down on top of us, does God still love me then? Doesn't feel like it, maybe, but does he? If I should stumble and make some poor choices, will God withhold his love from me? If you've ever wrestled with any of those kinds of questions, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39 is for you. It is a delicious portion of God's word. And I would like to read verses 31 to 39, would invite you to follow along in your Bible as I read them. Paul writes, verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. And who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Now, our plan today is to basically just do two things. First of all, we want to look at four key questions that surface in verses 31 to 37. And then secondly, we're going to look at Paul's ultimate conviction in verses 38 to 39. So let's just begin at the beginning and look at these four key questions that are in verses 37, or rather 31 to 37. Look at verse 31. Paul says, what then shall we say? So the first thing we ask is, who are the we? Well, he is writing to people who have embraced Jesus as their rescuer from sin and judgment. Pastor Mark took us through Romans chapter 5 and verses 8 and 9. Notice what Paul writes here. He says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us, key pronoun, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. What shall we say is referring to those who know Christ personally who've trusted in him. Back to verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? What is included in these things? Well, someone might be able to say, well, all of the book of Romans to this point would be included in these things. Certainly, we would know that Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 would be included in these things, where it says, therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. These things would certainly include verse 26 of chapter 8, speaking of the Holy Spirit who helps us, and it says that the Spirit himself personally intercedes for us it certainly would include that. These things would also include verses 28 to 30, where Paul indicates that our salvation process is guaranteed by God. Remember, it says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Our salvation process is guaranteed by God. Certainly that would be included in these things. And that's another reason why Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter 1 and verse 6. And he said, he who began a good work in you, what does it say next? We'll complete it, yes, we'll complete it. What shall we say to these things? And then in the second part of verse 31, we have key question number one. Key question number one is, if God is for us, who is against us? Now let me just give you a paraphrase of this. If God is for us, who can make us forfeit our no condemnation status? If God is for us. By the way, if clauses in the original language at times can be translated since, and this is one of those examples. 
So we could say, since God is for us, who is against us? And you know, there are forces, if you are a normal human being, that you have to face week to week and month to month and year to year. There are forces that we must face as we are living out our Christian life. For example, one of the forces we have to face is the world system, and the world system is trying to squeeze us into its mold. We also have to face the forces of difficulties and trials that come our way. As we live out our Christian life, we have to face the force of indwelling sin, our flesh that's always trying to drag us back into sinful behavior. We have to face the force of aging and death. You know, and I'm, I'm beginning to feel that more and more the older I get. As we live out our Christian life, we have to face the force of Satan and his minions. But notice what it says. Since God is for us, who is against us? By the way, don't, don't go right past that little phrase. God is for us. We need to relish that. We need to revel in that. God is on our side. And because God is on our side, who can oppose God? And the answer we would give would be, nobody, no one can do that. David in Psalm 27.1 wrote these words. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? And the answer is, no one. No one. Look at verse 32. He, God, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? I mean, the question is, how much is God for us? Well, think about it. He already has sacrificed his son for us. The greatest gift that we could ever receive has already been given to us, and that is the gift of Jesus. And he wouldn't do that and then toss us out of his family. You know, once you are in the family of God, you've been adopted into the family of God, you are a forever member. There is no substitute for God's substitute. Look at verse 33. Second key question. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? And that little phrase, who will bring a charge, is legal terminology. It refers to being called in with a legal summons. Who is going to call in with a legal summons God's elect? I like the way the New Living Translation puts it. Who is going to bring a charge against those whom God has chosen for his own? Well, it's not going to be God. It's not going to be God. Look at verse 33. God is the one who justifies more legal terminology. It's a verb. Justify is a legal term that means to declare righteous. 
And here's the idea, and this is, an, this is an incredible thought. Since God has rendered his verdict, if you know Christ, if he has declared you righteous, we are virtually, men and women, unimpeachable. We are secure in him. Who will bring a charge against those that God has chosen for his own? Look at verse 34, key question number three. Who is the one who condemns? Well, it's not gonna be God, we already saw that. Would it be Jesus? No. And there are four realities there in verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. That's reality number one, he died. This is the John 3, 16 thing. He gave his life for me. It's the Romans 5, 8 thing. Christ died for Bruce, for us. And we have a theological term for that. It's the term called substitution. You know, when Christ died all those many centuries ago, all of my sins were future. So all of my sins, past, present, and future, he died for. He was the substitute for. I had earned a penalty, you had earned a penalty, and he became the substitute, and the penalty went off of me and onto him. That's the doctrine of substitution. There's also another theological terminology that we like to use, and that is the, the doctrine of propitiation. Propitiation means that the full legal penalty was fully satisfied. He was the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. He was the full legal penalty payment for everything that I owed. Second reality, he was raised. You know, the resurrection was evidenced by God that he paid it in full. And then it says the third reality is he is at the right hand of God, as it says in Philippians 2.9, he is highly exalted. He has a name that is above every name. How many names are left out of every name? His name is above every name. He's ruling the whole universe. And the fourth reality is he also intercedes for us. That's an astonishing thing. The Holy Spirit does that and the Son does that. He is our personal legal representative. I don't know if you think about that on a day-to-day -day basis or not. You know what the personal focus of Jesus is every single day for you? Every single day, he's looking out for your welfare. He's interceding for you. Let me just ask you the question. Is Jesus effective at what he does? I mean, really. Does he do sort of a sort of good job? You know, do we kind of hope he knows what he's doing? Is he effective? Of course he's effective. He's looking out for our welfare every hour. The author of the Hebrews writes this in Hebrews 7.25, speaking of Jesus, he says, Jesus is able to save forever. Those who draw near to God through him because he, here comes some key words, always lives to make intercession for them. 
That's why when we're adopted into God's family, we're forever members. Can't work out any other way because he always lives to make intercession for them. Lydie Edmonds in 1891 wrote these words from a familiar classic hymn. I love these words. She, she wrote, my faith has found a resting place not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one, his wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died. And how's the last line go? And that he died for me. It's incredible stuff. Verse 35 gives us key question number four. What will separate us from the love of Christ? If you look at the first word in verse 35 in the New American Standard, it is the word who. The word in the original is the word tis, T-I-S. It's just an indefinite pronoun. You could translate it who. You could translate it what. My personal preference here would be to translate it what because what follows are not people or whos, but rather things, whats. What will separate us from the love of Christ? And the idea seems to be something that we might often think of when we're experiencing some of these things is if I am experiencing these things in my life right now, does God still love me? And a lot of times it doesn't feel like he does. But does he still love me? And by the way, when you look at these things listed in verse 35, what's really interesting is all of us could say, yeah, I've experienced that one or maybe that one or maybe this one. But Paul experienced them all. You can look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 28, where he delineates how all of these things he personally experienced. So what will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, very picturesque word, it's a word that speaks of oppressive pressure and stress that is pressing in on us. You ever experienced that in your life as a follower of Christ? Will that separate me from the love of Christ? No. Will he still love me even if I'm experiencing tribulation? Yes. How about distress? Another interesting term. It, it's a term that really comes from the idea of narrow. The idea is I'm being hemmed in in a hard time. Have you been hemmed in in a hard time recently? You know, the hard time that you're hemmed in by could be something like a divorce. It could be something like a medical diagnosis. It could be the loss of a job. It could be a financial crisis. It could be a relational crisis, and you're just hemmed in by this hard time. It's exactly how I've felt. You know, recently, most of you know, I've battled cancer for the second time, and it just feel like just kind of hemming me in. Will distress separate me from the love of Christ? No. Will he still love me if I'm experiencing distress in my life? Yes. How about persecution? You know, hostility that may come my way because of my stand for Christ. Or how about famine, being deprived of food? Or how about nakedness, being destitute, being cold or homeless? If I'm experiencing those things, will they separate me from the love of Christ? No. 
Will he still love me even if I'm experiencing those things as his follower? Yes. How about peril? You know, danger from mistreatment or sword, threats of violence that may come our way. And you know, there are believers all around the world right now that are experiencing those very things right now today as we speak. If we experience peril or threats of violence, will that separate, separate me from the love of Christ? No. Will he still love me if I experience those things in my life? Yes. And then we come to verse 36, which seems to be a mystery verse at times to us. It's a quote from Psalm 44, 22, where it says, just as it is written in the Old Testament, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Why does he throw this in here? Well, he's really trying to stress this fact, that hardship has always been the experience that followers of God have had. In fact, if you write in your Bible, you might write next to it or on top of it or whatever, the word normal. That's really why the verse is here. It's normal that followers of Christ might experience these kinds of things in our life. Normal. Most of you know that I had to undergo a rectal resection. It was about a year ago. And it took me months, months for my body to really relearn how to function. And I tell you, that just sort of avalanched down on me. And I felt the pressure of it. I felt hemmed in by it. And you may know I've shared that one of my themes was I wanted to entrust my soul to a faithful creator. See, the promise for a follower of Christ is not immunity from adversity. The promise is those things, that adversity will never separate us from the love of Christ. The promise is we will have victory from that adversity. Look at verse 37. He says, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. The word all is very emphatic. All the things I've been talking about in this section. In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. We are super victors, he says. Now, you might be saying, wait, wait a second. Wait a minute. Especially if you're in the midst of it right now, you're going, I, I don't quite get how that one works. You know, when you're in the middle of a rectal resection and you really can't walk 10 paces in one direction, you don't really feel like a super victor. And how does this work? Well, well he's, he's saying from a divine perspective this is true. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17, it says that some of this stuff that we're undergoing, this affliction that we are undergoing is called momentary and light. I don't know, when you, when you have a significant physical issue or you're dealing with cancer or whatever it may be, it doesn't really feel very momentary and certainly doesn't feel very light. But from a divine perspective, it is momentary and light because it's just going to be a flash of time. But from an eternity perspective, it's, to, it's different. And here's what's interesting. That momentary light affliction that we undergo, he says, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory that is far beyond all comparison. As we're trusting Christ as we go through these things, it's producing for us this eternal glory that's far beyond any comparison. And no matter what you may want to pick out that we may go through, nothing to compare to the glory that is to come. 
How do we qualify as super victors? Well, look at verse 37. In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer, here comes the key phrase, through him who loved us. It's all because of the lion from the tribe of Judah. Which, by the way, we're going to look at more carefully next week. Second thing we want to look at was Paul's ultimate conviction in verses 38 and 39. Notice he says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know, that word that is translated, that verb here in verse 38, convinced, is a word that means to be thoroughly persuaded. And it's in what's called the original language a perfect tense that means I have this conviction and the ramifications and results of that continue on. This is a fully certain conviction that Paul has. It's way beyond, you know, I think that none of these things will be able to separate us from the love of God. It's not, I guess... Not really sure, but guessing. It's not, I hope, oh man, I just hope somehow. No. He says, I am convinced, I am thoroughly persuaded. And he talks about pairs here. He says, neither death nor life. No sphere of existence you can think of. Death can't do it, life can't do it. Angels and principalities, probably angels referring to the good angelic realm, the principalities to the evil angelic realm. He's basically saying angels can't do it, principalities can't do it, do it. There's no supernatural forces that can do it. And then he says things present and things to come. Nothing today, nothing tomorrow that we can't even see coming is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says powers can't do it, probably a reference to those who are in power and authority over us in this world. He says nor height, nor depth, nor the outreaches of space or the deepest realms of the ocean. And then he says nor any created thing. I like the way the New Living Translation says it. Nothing in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So stop right there. Nothing in all creation can do it. Even you or I can't do it. So who's left? Who's left? Only God is left, and he is on our team, and he is for us. The point he is making is this, nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Men and women, this is a delicious truth. And this truth spurs us to run toward God, not run from God. See, those early years of my spiritual life, that's really what I was doing. I was running from God. This truth spurs us to run toward God. Well, what do we learn from these verses? Chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. I'd like to identify three things. Number one, we learn that God knows. 
No matter what we may ever face, God knows. And we will never, ever be alone. Second thing we learn is that God is for me. It's so important to to grip that firmly. He is on your team. When you know him, you've trusted in him as your rescuer from sin and judgment. He is on your team. He is for you. The third thing we learn is that God loves me. And there's nothing that can ever separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Penny Crosby in 1873, 114 years ago, right, wrote these words from a classic hymn. You'll recognize it. She wrote, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. These are God's words. Eat them, embrace them, believe them, and they will be a joy and a delight to your heart. Let's pray together. And as we pray, I would like to pray over all of you. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. I pray that Christ will be more and more at home in your heart as you trust in him. May your roots go down deep into the soil of God's marvelous love. And may you have the power to understand how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love really is. May you deeply experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be filled with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Amen. Amen. 